Well, we've been looking at the seven letters here in Revelations 2 and 3, and we're kind of looking at it a little bit differently. We're starting out looking at it kind of across the seven letters before we start looking at the letters individually. And one of the things that we have seen, and this is just a quick reminder, is that there are seven parts to each letter. Uh, and of course, those parts are, are numbered here. And we've looked at Jesus's commission to each church, or really to John to write to each church. We've already seen that. Uh, we've already looked at Jesus's character that he displays to each one of these churches, and how he says, thus saith, and he doesn't say the Lord, but he describes himself in terms that we recognize throughout Scripture, that he is the Lord. Uh, we also looked at the third part, Jesus' comprehension. That is also uh, something that begins with a formula, and that is, I know thy works, and there's a lot of other things that he knows concerning his work, concerning their works. Is that right? Yep. Um, and then, uh, we're going to look specifically, when we get to those letters, the commands and consequences uh, of what they do with those commands. Uh, but then, right now, we're looking at Jesus' comfort. And so this is something toward the end of each letter, and he offers promises of comfort to the churches. And then there's a final call. The, uh, in some churches, uh, the first three churches, uh, we have the, like if you look at verse 7, you actually have the call and the comfort um, reverse. So you have the call first and the comfort. And then the last four letters, you have the comfort first and then the call to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So again, the first three parts, Jesus' commission, character, and comprehension of the churches, uh, they all have formulas that introduce them, and they can be found in each letter. So it is kind of like a form letter. Uh, and the same is true for the last two parts. Uh, they are also introduced in the same way. So right now we're looking at the sixth part, uh, which is Jesus' comfort to the churches. And does anybody remember what that formula begins with? To him that overcometh, right, or he that overcometh. There's really two ways that it's put between the churches, uh, but it's all about those who are overcoming. And what we recognize from other scripture is that the true overcomer is a believer in Jesus Christ, someone who has a true faith in Christ and will ultimately persevere through the challenges and trials of their faith because of what Christ has done for them and what Christ is doing in them. And so that is the formula for this sixth part, Jesus' comfort to the churches. So the, for the faithful members of each church, he offers specific and special promises for the overcoming and prevailing saint over the various challenges that they face. Now, so far, uh, we've looked at his promises to the first four churches. If you remember, we've looked at the promises to Ephesus and to Smyrna, uh, to Pergamos, and to Thyatira. My goal was to hit the last three today, but that's not going to happen. Uh, so we're going to actually look at the promises to the final, or the, to two more, I should say, uh, and we'll leave Laodicea for next Sunday. Uh, so two more churches, and that is Sardis and Philadelphia. So the church in Sardis is something that we find three special promises that God gives to the overcomers in this church. And so I'd like us to begin by reading uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, which is the Lord's letter to the church, or really to the angel and the church there in Sardis. All right, so before we look at the, 
the comfort, the, the promises. Let's first kind of go through the other formulas that we've already seen in this letter. Uh, so again, we have the formula for Jesus's commission to John to write to this church there in verse one, and unto the angel of the church in Sardis, right? That's something that you find in every letter. Uh, then of course you have the introduction to Jesus's character, these things saith he, and then we learn something more about this Lord. Uh, some of that points back to the vision and the voice of chapter one. Uh, other parts of that character trait or that characteristics uh, refer to just his virtue as the son of God. And then of course we have also there in verse uh, verse one, we have the introductory formula for Jesus Jesus's comprehension of the church. I know thy works, right? And so those things we've already seen and traced throughout each letter. And now we come to, back to Jesus's comfort, uh, which is there in verse five. And that introductory formula is he that overcometh. And then the call is there in verse six, he that hath an ear, let him hear. Uh, so again, we find all of those different formulas. Uh, but one of the things that we find again in this church is a difficult challenge, don't we? In fact, this is the most serious challenge yet of the churches that we have looked at. Now, even though the church in Thyatira receives the longest letter, uh, here we have the church in Sardis probably re receiving uh, the most uh, serious letter. And so we, we recognize the importance of this. Uh, and the challenge that they face there is in chapter three, verse one. Uh, he knows, Jesus knows their works. And what is that? that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Now, that would be a very serious issue for any church, to have some kind of name that they're alive, and yet in reality they are dead. Uh, that would be a serious thing in any organization, or really in any family, or in any kind of people. A name that they are, they are living, but are dead. But even though this church does have a serious, difficult challenge, there was still hope for this church. And that's why beginning in verse five, he offers three promises of comfort to those who overcome. And again, who is it that will overcome ultimately? The true believer in Christ. And we know this from 1 John 5, four and five, John says, for whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the son of God. And so these are promises for God's people, God's true people, those who are part of the, the true body of Christ who will ultimately overcome these challenges, even though the church as a whole has a name that they are alive but are dead, and yet in them they have real life in Christ. So we're going to just look at these promises together. The first promise is the promise to experience the eternal spotlessness of Christ. The eternal spotlessness of Christ. As Diana read there in the first part of verse 5, he that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. In white raiment. Of course, this also speaks to part of the problem that the church in Sardis faced. And so one of the reasons why we know that they had a name that they were living, but in fact were dead spiritually, is because in verse 4, Jesus says to them, thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. So if there were some that had not yet defiled their garments, there were probably many, if not most in the church, who had defiled their garments. 
And of course, we know that those garments are not just the, the physical clothes that they were wearing. Here is a symbolic term for some of the issues that they were facing. And those garments were soiled garments. Soiled garments, which again is a symbol of the stains of sin and ultimately of unrighteousness. So we have a church who has a name to be alive. They would call themselves a church. In fact, there would be people around them that would look at them and think that they are some kind of church. And yet, in reality, they had stains of unrighteousness, not just in individuals, but in the church as a whole. They were following after the world and the flesh and the devil instead of after Christ. And so this is what they were clothed with, spiritually speaking. Uh, of course, one of the things that we need to remember about each of these promises, just like what we've seen earlier, is there's a connection between what is in the past and what is coming up in the future, or what is rooted in the Old Testament and will be fulfilled in the rest of Revelation. And that's no different here. So this, these soiled garments, symbols of unrighteousness, actually point us back to many verses in the Old Testament, like Isaiah 64, 6, that reminds us that we are all as unclean thing, or as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And so we recognize that this is a, a symbol all throughout the Bible of sin, of unrighteousness. The stains of sin and the stains of unrighteousness are, are these clothes that aren't as pretty as the purple that people have been wearing today, uh, but they are rags. They're filthy. They're nasty. They're smelly. They're gross. So what did they need in that church? What did they need for, for, that, for those garments that were soiled? Well, they needed spotless garments, obviously. They needed clean garments that would be white and clean. And of course, that is also in the Bible a symbol of true righteousness. And not just their own righteousness, but ultimately the righteousness of God himself. And so when Jesus makes this promise there in verse 5, uh, he that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, he too points back to the Old Testament. So Isaiah was talking about how we who do not have the Lord, we would have the, the garments that are like filthy rags. But when you overcome through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to be given this righteous garment that God himself possesses. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, again, Daniel is seeing a vision of God. And he describes not only God's head and, and hair as white like snow, but he also says that God's garment was white as snow itself. And so again, we have this picture of righteousness and perfection. And that was because of his own purity and absolute spotlessness. So that is what that church there in Sardis needed. That's what they needed to hear, and that's what they needed to receive. And that is the case for all of God's churches who might be like the church in Sardis and all of God's people who might have the same issues like the church here in Sardis. So we point back to the Old Testament. But then the fulfillment of this promise can be seen in Revelation itself. So Jesus himself says, I will give you this clothing in white raiment if you overcome, if you believe in me, if you trust in me. And the fulfillment is seen also in Revelation. In fact, if you keep your finger here, go with me. Go forward to chapter 19, verse 8. And there in that verse, we find the bride of the Lamb is seen to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the what? 
the righteousness of the saints. Now, again, that's not talking about our righteousness per se. It's rather the righteousness of God that he enclothes us and enrobes us in so that we will be spotless forever before him. And then jump down to verse 14 of that same chapter. And here at the coming, the second coming of Christ, the glorious return of Christ, here we have the armies of Christ joining him at his return upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. So there in verse 8 of chapter 19, clean and white. Here in verse 14, white and clean. And it all brings us back to that promise that Jesus gives to the church in Sardis for those who had not soiled their garments. He gives them the promise as they overcome to clothe them in white raiment. What a promise. What a promise, not just for those Christians in that worldly, even ungodly church at that place, at that time, but it's a promise for all true believers who will overcome and experience the spotlessness of Christ for all eternity. There are times when we see our own garments soiled, don't we? Because of sin, unrighteousness, unbelief, as we'll look at this morning a little bit later. But in the meantime, even though that's something that is promised to us and something that we will receive, the Lord also tells us, in Revelation 16, verse 15, you don't need to turn there. In the meantime, even though we're waiting for that spotlessness, he says, Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked, and they see his shame. So in one sense, we have that final garment that is in our future, and yet we also already have that garment placed around us. Uh, the justifying righteousness of Christ belongs to us, and now... Through his grace, through his spirit, he sanctifies us to be even more pure so that we can wash those filthy garments that we wear in this life in the blood of Christ so we become more holy and more pure, more like Jesus himself. And that's why here and now we need to keep those garments as clean, as white, and as spotless through his grace, through his power, through his help as we possibly can. So what a glorious promise to this church that needed the spotlessness of Christ. And that, is, of course, is for us as well. The second promise, if we go back to Revelation 3, verse 5, is the promise to experience the eternal salvation of Christ. Eternal salvation of Christ. So what, is, uh, what else will he do for the overcomer? Uh, again, verse 5, He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And, of course, that takes us backward and forward to the fulfillment of that. And the second promise, I will not blot out his name, out of the book of life. And that's the second promise. Now, elsewhere in Revelation, we learn that this book of life is an eternal record. It's an eternal record that was recorded even from the foundation of the world. And this is referenced in chapter 13, verse 7, and especially in chapter 17, verse 8. We'll look at those here in just a moment. Um, but we learn that this book of life is an eternal record that was recorded from the foundation of the world. Now, this book of life is also something that's referenced throughout Scripture, isn't it? It's something that we find both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And the first mention of such a book is in Exodus chapter 32. So again, with this promise, we're pointed backwards to the Old Testament, and then we'll be pointed forwards to the fulfillment. All right, so if you want to keep your finger here, go back with me to Exodus chapter 32. And in that passage... This is right after the golden calf incident, if you remember. 
And of course, that was a grievous sin, right? I mean, Moses was up in the mountain and God was giving him the Ten Commandments. And one of those commandments was, thou shalt not make any god, no idol, nothing, no image. And so what were the people who were being led by Aaron, what were they doing at the bottom of the mountain? They're making an idol, a golden calf. And of course, that incensed Moses. That incensed God also. But Moses also had a tender heart for his people. And uh, if you look at verses 32 and 33, Moses actually intercedes for his people. So even though this is not described here as a book of life, we still have the same idea in Revelation of being blotted out of a particular book. And, and certainly this is probably the, the same idea that John is talking about, Jesus is talking about here in Revelation 3. So if we head back there, Revelation 3. So here, Moses is interceding for his people. He asks God, if he will not forgive their sins of idolatry, that he would blot his name out of the book that he has written. Again, there's an eternal aspect of this book. But of course, God answers Moses and says, I will not do that, except for those who have sinned against me. Now, even though the book of life... Um, is mentioned here in the book, in the church of Sardis, the letter to the church in Sardis. It's meant not to be um, a discouragement, but rather an encouragement. Uh, even though it's meant to be a promise of comfort and a promise of ultimate salvation, the use of that idea of blotting, of blotting out the name, here in this letter and in Moses' prayer has caused a lot of discussion about the book of life. So what kind of book is this? Uh, in which Jesus says, I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. Well, there's a couple of suggestions as far as what this book would refer to. Uh, first, it may refer to a book with the names of everyone who will live physically recorded in it. And certainly that is something that um, can be seen possibly in, in Moses' prayer there. Um, and so ultimately, those who would hold this suggestion is that when a person dies without saving faith in Christ, their names are then blotted out by Jesus himself. So here's a record book recorded from eternity past before the foundation of the earth that have a record of everybody who's living. And then when they die without Christ, that name is blotted out. And so the names are only in the book of life based on this suggestion in a conditional way. So it's not a permanent record. It's a conditional record. However, there are some challenges to this suggestion, and that is what I mentioned earlier in that in the passage that we'll look at here in just a, a minute, in chapters 13, verse 7, and chapter 17, verse 8, we actually find people who are physically alive whose names are not written in the book of life. So it wasn't waiting for them to die. It was already there. So in fact, go back with me now to Revelation 13, uh, verse 7. So here he's talking about the people that will worship the beast. And uh, it says that, picking up there in verse 7, it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. And who are those who will worship this beast? Whose names are not written in the book of life, of the life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now, obviously... Um, the phrase slain from the foundation of the world refers to the lamb, 
And so this may not, not necessarily be referring to an eternal book, uh, people might say. But if you go back to chapter 17, verse 8, we see that the book itself is an eternal book. It says that the beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit, go into perdition, and they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from when? From the foundation of the world, when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. So there are some challenges to this suggestion or this idea that it's just a book of all living and then when they die without Christ their names are blotted out because we have people here in Revelation that are living whose names are not in the book of life. Uh, in Philippians chapter 4 verse 4 Paul even talks about how there are some brethren whose names are in the book of life. So I think that leads us to a better suggestion and that is that this book of life is an eternal book who are recording the names of those who will live only spiritually, uh, those who are truly alive in Christ. And so the names that are recorded there are those who will believe in Christ based on the election and foreknowledge of God that we read about elsewhere in the New Testament. And so when he is talking about blotting a name out of the book of life, if we head back to Revelation 3, he's not saying that it can be blotted out. He's not saying that there's a possibility that it can be blotted out. He's simply saying that it won't be blotted out forever. And so there should be a reason why he would even mention this to these Christians there in the church in Sardis, to the overcoming Christians there in the church of Sardis. And I believe the reason why he would mention it can be found in the setting of their own church. Because history bears this out. In ancient Roman cities like the city here in Sardis, there were books, there were ledgers, ledgers of all the names of their living citizens. And of course, that is something that you know we even have today. We have a census, right? Um, now, not necessarily are names blotted out of the census when they die, but over time, you learn who is living, who has died, who, um, how your population is growing or declining. But in those Roman cities, their names could be removed. And their names could be erased and blotted out upon death or even upon criminal behavior. <laughs> so if, if you were a citizen of a, country, of a city and you had disobeyed their laws, you could have that citizenship revoked. Uh, we kind of see that even in our own laws where if someone is, has broken a law and is a felon, they lose their right to vote in the community. And so again, we see some similarities there. But what Jesus is telling here in the church in Sardis is that their names might have been written in the books and records of men as if they were living. Remember, you go back to verse 1. You have a name that you are living. So maybe they had a church role. And that role was having their names as if they were part of the body of Christ. And yet, they were actually, in fact, dead. Or most, if not many of them, were, in fact, dead. And he says, you know what? Don't think about the role and the record that you have in men in which your names can be blotted out. Because really, there's only one record book that really matters. And that is Jesus' own book of life. And if you are a true believer in Christ, if you truly overcome your challenge here, guess what? This is a book that will never, your name will never be blotted out. And that gives security in the salvation that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not saying that it can be blotted out. He's saying that it won't ever be blotted out. And that is a comfort even for those who were following 
the Lord here in the church in Sardis. Maybe there were some that were saying, well, you know what? You're too strict in your interpretation of Scripture. You're too literal in your interpretation of Scripture. Uh, you, you're, you're looking not like us, and so we're going to get you out. We're going to drum you out of this congregation, this church that has a name that's alive but dead. And maybe some of those Christians were like, what do we do? If our name's not written in the ledger of the church, are we really part of the body of Christ? He says, you don't have to worry about that. If you're following after me, I will never forsake you, and I will never, ever blot your name out of this book, my book, that has been written since the foundation of the world. It's an eternal book. Now, for those who believe in Christ, that is satisfying. That is security. That rejoices our heart. So if their name is recorded in the book of life, what do we know? Well, Jesus said to Martha in John eleven twenty five, 25, He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And so even if we are physically dead, even if we are persecuted to the point of death, we will still live in Christ. Um, now, this is important. Um, this is the only record book that really matters because of the consequences of whether you're in there or not in there. Uh, again, pointing forward. In Revelation 20, verse 15, it says, Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast where? Into the lake of fire. So there's only one record book that matters, right? And then in chapter 21, verse 27, concerning the new Jerusalem, uh, it says that there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they that are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so if your name's written there, guess what? You have the right to walk in and out of that new Jerusalem and be able to see God face to face. So that is why he tells, tells the church there, again, he that overcometh, I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. Now, how do you know if your name's written there? How do you know if your name is written in the book of life? Well, the evidence of that is he that will overcome. There's going to be that perseverance in faith over your life as you grow in grace and the knowledge of Christ. You're going to, there might be falls. Uh, there might be times when you trip up. Uh, when, you know, when you look at the trajectory of the Christian life, it's not always straight up, is it? Sometimes it looks like a roller coaster. But the, dread, the trajectory continues to go closer and closer, drawing nearer and nearer to the Lord. So the one who is overcoming, as you overcome these challenges through your faith in Christ, that is the proof that your name is written there and will never be blotted out because it will be there for all eternity. And then that leads us uh, back to chapter 3, verse 5, to the third promise to the church in Sardis, and that is the promise to experience the eternal sanction of Christ, or his personal approval and open acknowledgement of his people. So again, three promises of comfort to the one who overcomes in the church of Sardis. Revelation 3, 5, he that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. King James has but... Um, it's actually the word chi, so it should also be translated and, indicating that it's a third promise, a third specific promise, and I shall confess his name before my father and before his angels. 
So this is a promise for believers to experience the eternal approval and sanction of Christ. And this promise, again, points back and points forward. Um, this time it points back to what Jesus himself said in Matthew 10, 32. Jesus says, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. So Jesus says, if you confess me, which is part of being a believer, right? You believe in your heart and then you make profession and confession with your mouth. And as you do that, you have this promise that he will confess you also before his Father which is in heaven. And then here, Jesus expands that, and not just before his Father, but before the angels in heaven itself. In other words, Jesus will claim you as his own. He will not be ashamed of you. Now, when we think of the things that sometimes we do in this life, and we think, boy, can't imagine Jesus being proud of me. Yet here we have a promise that Jesus will never be ashamed of you. He will claim you as his own. Uh, this also points back to the Old Testament, Malachi 3.17, where it talks about how believers will be mine, saith the Lord of hosts. In that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. So imagine you, in the eyes of God, as being one of his jewels in his treasure chest. Now, sometimes we don't think of ourselves in that way. How can I... With all my failures, all my faults, all my unbelief at times, all my even sins, and, and sometimes we, we have a, a name that's alive and yet we're dead, and yet how can I be a jewel by God in his treasure chest? Because of what Jesus Christ does for us. Really? Remember the first promise? I will clothe them in white raiment. It's what he gives to us. It's what he does for us. So he, he claims us. He also will confess us before his Father to change us. Um, this is something that he's doing ongoing in our lives now. In Jude 24, it says that Jesus is presenting us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. And so that's the process. It's so that we will have that spotlessness someday. So we see all of these promises really coalescing together to show just how unified they really are. And really, all three of these promises are added to the other ones. All of the other ones that we've already looked at in the other churches, and they belong to all believers in Christ who overcome by grace through faith in Christ. So again, think of those amazing promises. He that overcometh, verse 5, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. That's the eternal spotlessness of Christ. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. That is the eternal salvation of Christ. That is yours. But I will, or and I will, confess his name before my Father and for his angels. The eternal sanction and approval of Christ. He will never forsake you, not for eternity. That leads us to the church in Philadelphia. I come to you next there in Revelation 3, 7. Uh, the Lord actually offers two more special promises of comfort to the overcomers in this church. We're just going to be able to get to one of them. <laughs> uh, but I'd like us to read again, as we've done in the past, Jesus' message to this faithful church. All right, so just like in the other churches, we find a challenge. We're just going to cover this really briefly. Uh, the challenge to the church in Philadelphia is twofold. Uh, the first challenge was from within, and that's there in verse 8. They had just a little strength, the Lord says. Now, this is not talking about spiritual strength because he also says in the same breath that they did keep his word and did not deny his name. So it's not a, a spiritual weakness. 
Uh, perhaps it's some other kind of weakness that we'll explore in the future, maybe a, a physical weakness. Maybe they were an old congregation, or maybe they were a small congregation. Uh, but that was a challenge from within. Uh, the second challenge was a challenge from without, uh, because in verse 9, they were struggling with some of those of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. And, and this is something we find elsewhere in the New Testament. There are those who might say they are the people of God, and yet really, in reality, they are not the people of God. And even though we do not find any sin addressed here in the church or to the church of Philadelphia, they still had these challenges to overcome, both within and without. And for those who would overcome, we find the first promise, uh, which is there in verse 12, and that is the promise to experience the eternal stability of Christ. The eternal stability of Christ. Again, verse 12, He that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. Now, obviously, uh, this is not a literal reference to being made a physical pillar in some kind of physical temple, uh, because that wouldn't really be a whole lot of fun in throughout eternity. Uh, we'll still be walking and talking and doing things. So obviously, this is a symbolic reference for stability. After all, a pillar in any kind of temple, whether it was Jewish or pagan temples, and really the churches in Asia would have been very familiar with pagan temples. They were pretty much everywhere in just about every city. Those pillars were known for their size and their strength and their stability. And so you can actually go to some of these sites, these ruins, and one of the things that's pretty much there, especially if you go to like the, I think it's the Parthenon in Athens, uh, I mean, you see the pillars. I mean, you see how strong they were, how big they were, and they were still there. Uh, if you think back in the Old Testament, Solomon in his temple actually had two main pillars, and they were made out of entirely brass. And they were actually so spectacular, they were given names. Uh, in the Old Testament, the right pillar in God's temple was Jachin, which means established. And the other one was Boaz. I forget what that one was, what that one meant. Um, but John, or Jesus, I should say, uses these pillars to symbolize the great position and place of his people that they will enjoy forever in the very presence of God. And that is why he says, he will be a pillar in the temple of my God. Because the temple back then, and you know, even today, and especially in the book of Revelation, was considered to be the special place of God's presence and glory and worship. Now, it's interesting because this is the very first place where reference is made to God's temple. And the Greek word is naos, and you're going to find that a few other times throughout this book. Uh, but as we go forward in Revelation, we're going to see that um, it always, or maybe almost always, refers to God's heavenly home. Uh, there might be one place uh, where it may not be referring to his heavenly home. Uh, but in every other place, including here, he's talking about his heavenly home. And of course, we're, we know he's not even talking so much about the eternal state uh, because the, the temple that we find is God himself, right? Uh, God is the temple there in that new Jerusalem. And so that's what makes this promise so special. It's because you will be like that pillar named Jacob. You will be established there. You will never fall from that place. You will never have to leave that place. You will be in God's presence forever. And that is eternal stability. What a promise. 
What a promise. Um, the second promise we're actually going to save for next week, but I will introduce it, and that is the promise to experience the eternal sealing of Christ, uh, which is found in the rest of verse 12 of chapter 3. I will write upon him. And there's three things that he's going to write upon us. And, of course, that is the eternal sealing of Christ. All right, let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you again for the privilege that we've had to explore these letters for ourselves and help us to remember that they're not just reserved for the, the people that overcome in that day. Lord, they're for us too. So, Father, these promises are our promises. And so I pray that you'll give us ears to hear what the Spirit has said to these churches. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.